The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. So we've been going through uh, Luke and we're in chapter 7, right? We started in September and we're moving right along. And chapter 7 really has been like one long story. And I want to keep making sure that we're staying in that storyline. So if you remember, about three weeks ago, we had, we had seen where Jesus had helped a centurion's servant who was dying, right, on their deathbed. And, and he healed them, right? Uh, he healed that particular servant. And then right after that, we, he meets a, a widow. And the widow is now grieving over the death of her only son. And Jesus raises this young man from the dead, right? And all, the whole town rejoices. After that, we see that Jesus then actually helps stand beside and encourage his friend, John the Baptist, who's in prison and doubting, right? So we just see how good of a friend Christ is to all these different people who may know him, who may not even know him, but his own goodness cannot be stopped as he goes about. It's not based on their goodness on how he responds to the situation. Well, this morning, what we're going to see is he's going to, he's going to confront a tax collector. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. He's going to confront a, um, a particular man who's a Pharisee, and then he's going to He's going to comfort and forgive the sins of, of, a, of a very sinful woman. Uh, and so that's where we're at this morning. And so let's look at the text. We're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 36 through 39. As uh, Ryan was reading this morning, he read it in whole. We're going to take our time and just look at it and see what we can learn uh, about Christ in, in the scriptures this morning. All right, verse 36. So it says, One of the Pharisees asked him, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. Let's pause. All right. If you remember in Luke 5, Jesus got invited to a, a tax collector's house, to a sinner's house. And the Pharisees would not go into that party. They were on the outside looking in and they're questioning, why is Jesus dining with the scum of the earth? That, that really was what they were asking. And they were befuddled by it. This is a rabbi. This is a, a, a man who knows the Lord. Why is he going in with all these unclean people? And they start to talk to Jesus. They're not very happy. Not very happy about his, his let's, table etiquette, right? And he said, listen, I have come for those who are sick, right? Do you remember this? Those who are well or think they're well, they don't actually need a doctor. And he was talking to them. It was pretty pointed. Well, now we see a Pharisee. He's like, well, I wonder if he'll come to my house. So he invites him. And Jesus gets a dinner invitation. And, and he goes. Why? Never forget... <laughs> You can be lost in two different directions. You can be lost in irreligion and you can be lost in religion, right? Only Jesus is center. And so he's glad to go into this Pharisee's house and help him see that you, you might not actually know all the things you think you know. And so he goes in and he receives this invitation. See how it says he's reclining at table? Uh, we don't do this most often. We're a little more formal. But they would just kind of have a table in the center, and everybody would be kind of leaning, right? Elbow, you can imagine laying there, grabbing some grapes. That's how I picture it anyway. Little hummus, right? And, and they're enjoying conversation, and they're just kind of laid out, relaxing. So his feet would be back, his head would be in. I want you to get the picture. I really do. I want you to be able to see this. And, and then it says, and behold, <laughs> right? A woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, 
brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. All right. Let's, let's think about this for a minute. So Luke's painting quite a vivid picture. It's quite a vivid scene, right, uh, for us to consider. During that time, right, life, life was lived in, in public much more than it is even today. So they would have, uh, not behind walls, right, the dinner party you have, most people it's not like, behold, a woman of the city just shows up at your dinner party. Probably not going to happen. There, it probably would. They'd probably either be in a courtyard or sometimes they would even leave the doors open and you weren't welcome to maybe grab a seat at the table, but you could listen to the discussion that might be happening. And that's what we have here. Even in our own time uh, of understanding cultural, uh, let's say, welcomeness has changed. There used to be a ton of emphasis on front porches. And, and you, would, you would be on your front porch, and you'd be talking to your neighbors, and there'd be people walking down the street, and you would then engage them in conversation, and it was lived in a much more public way. Now, where do we put all our emphasis? Most frequently. It's on the back deck or the back porch, right? And that's maybe not strange, but there was a time where you knew your neighbors, and your neighbors knew you. Will magnify that times a whole bunch in this particular culture. And so people could come and people would go. During that time, uh, entertainment was really a, a public affair. Uh, the doors of the house would be open, and, and, and she's going in, right? So that gives you a little understanding of, of kind of the, the, the moment that's happening in this time. Now, we know very little about this particular woman, right? Um, and, and really, that's, that's thanks to Luke's, let's say, graciousness. Uh, many times people add a whole bunch of stuff onto this lady and they say she was a prostitute and they say this and they say that. And she may have been or she may not have been. Luke doesn't tell us. What we know is that she's a sinner in the city and that she is known. Now, we don't know what her particular sin that entangles or enslaves her is and we shouldn't try to know because I think Luke's being kind in saying, I'm not going to give you her name and I'm not going to give you her background. But here's, here's who she was really. It's not who she is. And that's the power of the gospel, right? And so we don't know really anything other than this. Boy, she was a sinner, and now she's a lover of Jesus. She's a worshiper. She walks in, and, and she causes quite a scene, right? Why? Well, it's because of gratitude. Uh, and you'll see that as we continue to work through the, the text. We don't know how, but somehow, somewhere, possibly through a public sermon, possibly through an interaction with Jesus Christ, she's had a conversation and or has heard the good news about Jesus Christ. She didn't just show up and she's got like some serious, like expensive perfume that she's going to go and weep tears of joy and repentance on Jesus' feet and start to like clean his feet and anoint him. It's not like the first time she's heard of him or met him. She has heard of this man. So imagine, though, he's captivated her heart, right? And, and imagine the courage it would take for her to enter this dinner party, right? I mean, everybody knows her. She's the talk of the town. 
And, and it's not a good thing, right? Everybody's been talking about her. But Jesus' teaching and his ministry has made a huge impact on this woman's life. And so she really has this picture of audience of one. And she just walks in. And she's not concerned about what everyone else is thinking. <laughs> Talk about freedom. Talk about freedom. How many times are, are you and I preoccupied with what someone else might think about the way you love the Lord? about the way you love other people. I mean, right? I'm not alone in this. Many times we're, we're so preoccupied with the thoughts of what others might think that we can't even think about Christ. But all she sees in this moment is Him. And that's all she's concerned about. Which leads us to our first point. The forgiveness of Christ sets us free to passionately worship Jesus. That's our first point. Right? Picture it. She's a desperately sinful woman. Having known, it says, where Jesus was. So she's going to see him, right? What does she do? She brings uh, perfume and oil. It would have been very expensive at that time. Don't think Axe, right? I don't know if Axe makes anything for women. But don't think like Bath and Body Works or whatever, right? Like, and if you wear that, that's fine. I'm talking this is expensive, right? Like, and I don't even know what expensive perfume is. So there's where my, my story ends as far as understanding perfume or cologne. But this would have been very costly. And she shows up with a vial of that. And she stood at his feet. Picture her. She's weeping. And this is not like Hollywood crying, right? Like dabbing it a little bit here and a little bit here. Like she has probably snot running out of her face. It's ugly crying, right? And she is just tears, tears, tears. And began to wet his feet with, his te with her tears. And then it says, and wiped them dry with her hair. Kept on kissing his feet and anointing him, his feet, with this fragrance, with this perfume. <laughs> this is a scandalous scene. It really is. Uh, and when I say scandalous, I don't mean like some erotic thing. Don't, don't shove stuff into the text. But it, it would have been a scandal. The Pharisees in that room and the, the religious folks in that room would have been very uncomfortable with a woman of the city coming in and putting on a production like this. And you, you know, we can already know what one of them's thinking because the text tells us. But, but she doesn't care. She does not care. She's overcome by Christ. She's overcome by His love, His kindness that she has forgotten or cast off all these social restraints and she's at his feet, and she's worshiping him. She's passionately worshiping him. I mean, the air would have been filled with a, a fragrant aroma of worship. And it's beautiful, right? It, it would have been an electrifying scene in that moment. This woman loved Christ. She loved him because she had been loved by him. It's pure adoration. This is what worship looks like, by the way. This is really what worship looks like. Genuine heart worship is really just seeing and valuing Christ above all things. It's treasuring Him. It's enjoying Him. It's loving Him. It's delighting in Him. It, it's something that involves emotion, but it involves head and heart. You see Him for who He is, and you see yourself for who you are, and you realize, I could never come near to Him except the fact that He's made a way for me to draw near, and He's kind. And he's full of mercy. And he's tender. And he's compassionate. And she comes on in. And she just receives him. Why? Because he's welcomed and received her. What an example for all of us as we read this. Now, now here's the thing though. It's not primarily about the woman. 
It's about two people. And we really need to think about it. It's ultimately about Christ, right? Up till this moment, not a word's been spoken at this party. Not one word. No one has said anything to the woman. Just imagine, they're speechless. They're all probably staring at her, though, because this is quite the scene, right? Um, Nothing's been said in that moment. And it was silent, but the silence was about to be broken, right? Why do we see that? Well, because Jesus is reading this man's mail. This man meaning Simon, the Pharisee. He, he knows what's going on in this man's heart, right? And we're not told how he knows what he's thinking, uh, but he addresses him in a very short parable. Let's look at that. Look at verse 40 with me. And it says, Jesus, And Jesus answering said to him, Now remember, Simon has only thought something. This is awkward, right? You, we have all thought things we ought not think in a social moment. And imagine if somebody could read your thought and say, well, I could tell you. And like, tell, tell me what? Well, you were thinking this. Well, this would have been very unsettling, right? <laughs> yeah, some of you get this because you, you probably think a lot of different things. Man, like, oh, if somebody knew that, that would not be good. I'm thinking right now something about you. And it's like, oh, okay. Simon, he says, I have something to say to you. You do not want to hear this from Jesus when you're thinking what, what Simon's thinking. It's never a good moment. And he answered him. He said, well, say it, teacher. He goes, okay. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And this is not good, by the way. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Turning, then, listen, then turning toward the woman... He said to Simon, now he's not looking at Simon, he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon, and he says, do do you see this woman? (laughs) You know he's staring at her. You you know Simon's staring at her. Jesus looks at her and he says, do you see her? Oh, man. Listen, by the way, the parable is pretty straightforward, right? There are two people uh, in debt to a, a moneylender. One for 500 denarii, one for 50. It's, it, it's, it's, a 10%, I mean, it's 10 times the amount, right? How much is it? People debate. Imagine two years worth of wages compared to two months, right? That's probably close. And, and so it's huge. But don't miss the punchline. He says, when they could not pay, neither of them can pay it. It doesn't matter how small your debt is, your debt. You have a debt. You can't pay your debt. He says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Who does that, by the way? Nobody. No, don't believe me? If you have a house loan, go to your bank this week and ask them to cancel the debt. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you have two months left. They're like, mm, yeah, no. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. But Jesus here, he does that. But listen... Jesus doesn't stop here. He has a question for Simon. He says, which one of them will love me, love the, the, the one who canceled the debt more? Simon, apparently being good at math, he says, well, the one, I suppose, who canceled the larger debt. Jesus says, winner, winner, chicken dinner. That's not good news for Simon. Right? He says, you've judged rightly. Then, turning to the woman. <laughs> oh, Jesus is a tacticianer. He's, he's reading this guy's mail. He, he's saying, do you see her? And the answer is, of course he sees her. 
he, he hasn't taken his eyes off of her. wonder if his, his jaws are clenched, if he's glaring, if he's got a furrowed brow. We don't know. But he doesn't see her the way Christ sees her. Oh, how many times that's been us. Why? It goes back to the last chapter. Because he's got a telephone pole sticking out of his face. And it's hard to see people when, when, when you think you're not that bad. And everyone around you is much worse than you. Right? You're self-righteous. You can't see through your own self-righteous self. He can't see her. Listen, while one of the debtors definitely owes ten times more than the other, but here's the deal. Both are on the same level because neither of them can pay. Neither of them. That's the point of the text. You both need forgiveness, but you don't see your need. Why? Because you think you're okay. Well, that's the problem. Both Simon, the elite moralist, and the scandalous sinner woman are in the same dilemma. They have a debt. They can't pay it. They owe a sin debt to God, and they cannot pay. What do they need? They need mercy. They need forgiveness. They need their debt to be canceled. That's what they desperately need. One can see their need. The other is so blinded he cannot. And so Jesus continues on, right? Look at verse 44, the second half. Jesus says, I, have, I entered your house. Now, this would have been very common, by the way, just in hospitality during that time. He's using particular things that would have been very common, right? So when someone comes into your house, you may greet them at the door, right? You might ask if you could take their coat. You, you might ask if, if they would like a, a drink of water. I, you know, I don't know what you do, but we all do something. Hopefully you're not just sitting there, unless you're really good friends. I leave my door unlocked and say, come on in. But that means we're, like, we're family. But if it's the first time you're coming to my house, I'm going to greet you. I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to do everything I can to make you comfortable, right? Same thing during that time. They just had some different rules about how they would engage that. And Jesus is talking specifically about those rules to this man. He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, been like a handshake or a hug, a welcome, right? But from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> this is quite the scene, right? right? The story really serves to, to reveal why the sinful the needy, the broken, all of us, but, but primarily those who are really broke down really know that they, they receive Christ with joy because they know I need. But the moral man, the moral woman needs as well. But these religious Pharisees, they can't see it. That's why they often remain frustrated by him. Jesus will often frustrate religious people because he doesn't exactly fit my mold, right? And so here's the thing. I used to have the privilege of, of going to a, a rehabilitation place, a drug rehabilitation place called Spirit Life with Pastor Joe Ryer from Indiana. And we would go there and we would teach the gospel. Now, when you hear spirit life, don't think Holy Spirit life. This is like whatever spirit you want, man. You could just be all hopped up on mushrooms and hugging trees. Some of them were. 
in that place. But we were there to represent Christ and to bring the gospel to bear on people's lives. Now you would think in a place where there's drug rehabilitation, you wouldn't encounter a lot of religious folks. But we did. It was amazing how many that we met. They would compare one another. Well, I'm only a drug uh, addict because I did prescription drugs and I didn't know it and it's not my fault and here I am. But, but it would, we would meet people who were strung out on heroin, right, detoxing, and they would say, well, it's because my mom didn't hug me enough. And all those things might help explain how they landed there. But they're all comparing themselves. But then they would always point to somebody in that room and say, but at least I'm not. And they would say it. They would say it. Why? Because, man, religion, it's the default setting of the heart. When I say the heart, I mean your heart, my heart. Grace is so foreign to us. Right? What do I need to do to get you to forgive my sin? Just just receive it. Trust me. I'll do it all. Uh, I got to do a little something, right? No, you don't. But here's the the thing, though. When we would teach this particular text, what was amazing to me is all the religion that came out of it because people would then say, ah, so I've got to love Jesus to get my sins forgiven. And if you read the text, you could almost understand why they would say that. Because it says, because she loved much. Which means, because she loved much, she had her sins forgiven. The only problem with that is this text and the rest of the Bible. (laughs) You can't come away with that. I mean, I guess you could. It's just a really horrible interpretation. But but because so many people in that room struggled with this text and and wrestled with, do I have to love God first before he loves me back? I'm going to assume some of you still struggle here. And I know that you do. So here's the question. Is the woman's love a consequence of divine forgiveness or the cause of it? Let me ask it in a different way. Is the woman forgiven because she came in and displayed love for Jesus? Or does she respond in this way because she has been loved by Christ? That is the question. And I think really a superficial and even religious interpretation of the text draws the conclusion that her great love led to her forgiveness, right? Because it says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for, which really is because she loved much. And if I only looked at that text, okay, that makes sense to me. But we have to look at the whole text, right? So so let's look at it. Look at Jesus' little parable. Verses 41 and 42 make the order clear. He cancels the debt of both right now, right? And okay, so that comes first. And now he says, who do you think, because he canceled the debt, will love more? And Simon gets it. He said, well, I suppose the one who, who canceled the larger debt. You're right. Allah, her. You still have a debt, Simon, but you don't see it. She sees it, and she's responding appropriately. And you, you're not. Why? Because you think it's chump change. Why? Because you're you're not that bad. Wrong. Her love, her adoration is evidence of a forgiveness already received. (laughs) It's grace. And I'm so thankful for that. See, this woman was not forgiven because she treated Jesus better than the Pharisee did. She treated Jesus better than the Pharisee because she knew she had been forgiven 
This is the right response to understanding the gospel. It's love, right? So, some in, in the spirit life realm, right, where I used to teach this, hated this text because they didn't think they were that bad of drug addicts. And, and they would tell you that. And so religious people come in all shapes and sizes. They, they really do. All kinds of different backgrounds. But here's the question. How can you tell if you get it? You, personally. You. Me, personally. How can you tell if you're understanding what Jesus is teaching in this text? Answer, how do you love? How do you love? How do you love Christ? How do you love those in your life? How do you love those that don't love you back? This is the measurement. That's not how you get saved. It's how you understand how much Christ has done to save you. It really is. So this is the second point. The forgiveness of Christ transforms us to love. That is not the gospel. It's a result of the gospel. Don't mix the two. Don't mix the two. It's the fruit of understanding the gospel of grace, right? This woman is a perfect example of this, but there are many throughout the Bible and throughout history. One, St. Augustine, right? If you don't know that guy, it's okay. He's a classic example, though. As a 17-year-old young man, he was a student, and he had a live-in girlfriend by the age of, like, I think it was 20, okay? Mom, God-fearing woman, not excited about this situation, all right? That he was sharing a bed for over a decade with a particular woman whom he was not married to. So mom, she starts to pray, right? And, and at the age of 23, Augustine even authored a book that would be actually, it sounds very popular in our time and age, right? It was called On the Beautiful and the Fit. But then, through the prayers of his mother and, and the, the kindness of God, he came to see his sin. This is the first step of really understanding what Christ has done. He understood his need, and he was converted. He then eventually became Augustine of Hippo, and he became one of the greatest theologians of the early church. There's another man named John Newton, author of a great hymn. You may have heard of it, Amazing Grace, right? Well, what you may not know about this man is that his history was full of just awful sin. He was a, a, a slave trader right? Uh, but he come to, to come and understand the grace of God. He wrote Amazing Grace. While he was even still wrestling with it, then spent the rest of his life as a pastor seeking to, to abolish slavery with a man named William Wilberforce, right? Why? Why did they love like that in return? Because they, re they realized how much they had been loved. How could they not respond with love, when Christ had loved them so perfectly. As a matter of fact, towards the, end of, uh, towards the end of John Newton's life, he said this. He goes, although my memory's fading, he goes, I remember two things very clearly. And if this is all you can remember, it'll be very helpful for you in your life. One, I'm a great sinner. Two, Jesus Christ is a great Savior. <laughs> oh, how many times we, we, we wrongly graduate from that. I, I was a great sinner, and Jesus is just kind of an okay Savior, and now if it's meant to be, it's up to me. Now, you don't say that. I don't say that, but sometimes we drift. We drift into that religion, and, and, it, and it's never a joy. Nothing good comes from it, right? It's, it's despair often will come, um, or, or pride, but never a humble grace that seeks to love God and love others. 
That only the gospel, only the grace of what Christ has done to save sinners produces that in the life of his believers. May that be the theme of our worship here. May that be the theme of our lives here. We're not great. You're not great. Sorry if that's news to you this morning, right? Jesus Christ is great. We make much of Jesus. We don't make much of ourselves. And anything that, that might look great upon you, we just turn it back to him. Because if it were not for him, if it were not for him, you don't have the gifts you have because you all studied so hard. It's all grace. Your whole life is grace. You're like, well, my mom and my dad, well, who gave you that mom and dad? Who gave you the home you grew up in? All of these things you can point back and say, God, you're so kind. So kind, right? The more we see Jesus clearly, the more we actually shrink, right? Not in self-pity, but in a way, I'm actually much worse than I ever dreamt when I first got saved. And Jesus is far greater than I ever understood than when I first got saved. He just continues to enlarge in, in my heart. That's why John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease, that, that's how you know you're starting to understand the gospel. Not that you get a big head, but you start to shrink. But he makes much of you in the cross. Why? Because that makes much of the Father's kindness and love. Jesus loves to magnify his Father, and the Spirit loves to magnify Jesus, and we seek to just join in the work that he's doing. Right? So, now, I want to be clear, though. You don't have to have a wretched life to understand that you, yourself, are a very needy person to receive grace. You could have been a pretty good person throughout history. Uh, the Apostle Paul is a great example of that. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet, this man would come on, and he would come to know the redeeming love of Jesus Christ, and he would say these words in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief. Now, was he the worst guy ever in history? No, probably not, but he had come to understand in comparison, when I look at the holiness of God, oh, even my, my good deeds are just filthy rags. Nothing about me is good. You're good. Oh, that's the work of, of the Spirit. If you, if you believe that here, right? If you understand that here, you didn't do that. The work of God did that. The Spirit in you did that. And so praise Him for that. If you can come to understand and to know that, there should be no pride in our understanding of the gospel. It's a gift. Simon can't see. Jesus is trying to help him see in this moment. And it seems a little bit tough love. Do you know why? Because it is. And it's the medicine he needs. It's the medicine he needs, right? And so, but here's the thing. People nowadays, they would see Paul and they would say, oh, Paul, you're not chief of sinners, right? They would try to comfort him. You're not that bad, right? Come on, buddy. Quit looking down on yourself so much. You're, you're better than so-and-so. And, and we can do that. We can mis mistakenly do that and give people a bunch of self-talk that's not very helpful. Because actually what needs to happen is conviction of sin needs to happen. 
It needs to happen. Now, if someone's a believer and they're, they're condemning themselves and they're wallowing in the sins that Jesus has already paid for, okay, that's where we come along and we encourage and we remind them of Christ's sacrifice. We remind them of the good news of Jesus Christ. We remind them that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But if they are not in Christ, you're a fool if you come along and say, ah, oh, you're not that bad. You helped out at the YMCA. Well, whoop-dee-doo-da-ding. You're worse than you think. That's really what you ought to say. You still don't see. You're actually worse than you think. I mean, well, that didn't help me, right? You've got to come along with good news after that, but you definitely want them to see why. Because otherwise, they'll never go to a Savior. Why? Because they don't need a Savior. I got this. You're right. I'm not that bad. Thanks. Whew. Oh, come on, let's, be, let's seek to, by God's grace, be better tacticianers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's love people better than that. Let's let them know, no, you, you, you are that bad. You're starting to understand. That's a gift of grace. God, in his kindness, is allowing you to see you don't measure up. And here's the beauty of the good news. Jesus measured up in your place. And you start to unpack the beauty of what Christ has done for them. You don't minimize what they've done. You maximize what Christ has done. You highlight Him. You, you don't highlight them, right, by saying, oh, you're not that bad. No, you, no you're worse. Why does this matter? Well, because there, there are no good people and bad people. There's only bad people in Jesus. That's it. You have to get this. So many times we'd like to categorize our people, uh, ourselves, and, and, well, I'm... But you're just being, you're being Simon in that moment. You're not understanding the gospel in that moment, right? Until you're actually appalled by your sin against the holy God, you'll actually never be amazed at his mercy and grace and forgiveness. You just won't. You, you will not think Jesus is as amazing as he is if you think you're not that bad. He's just okay, right? Wrong. I mean, why do so... Here, here's, here's where you bring it home. Why do so many professing Christians love so little? That is the question. That is the question we have to ask ourselves. The answer is because they've actually never truly seen how great and awful of a sinner that they are so that they could actually understand how sure and sweet a Savior Jesus Christ is. That's why. That's why you can just go on Facebook or whatever social format you want to and blast people who are worse than you. Oh, it's, it's, it's shameful when we do that because what it means is we have a small view of our sin. And when you have a small view of your own sin, you will have a small view of Jesus Christ, who is your Savior. So, so we need to understand ourselves properly in the light of Scripture, right? The depth and passion of our own personal worship of Christ depends how clearly we actually see our personal guilt in light of the truth and the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers us. And he offers you full and perfect, complete forgiveness. All your past, all your present, all your future sins, the moment you receive his gift of grace, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. That's why he can say from the cross that it's, it's finished. Well, don't I have to continue? No, trust him. That's, that's what he's saying. And that is the life that will start to build up to loving God and to loving others. 
right? Thomas Watson once said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And that's, that's a great summary of this whole text. So the question is, how do we cultivate such awe and passion and love for Christ? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. We do not move on from the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay, I got it. I got it. I was a bad guy, bad girl. Jesus is a good savior. Now let's get into the real deep stuff of Christianity. It doesn't get deeper than Jesus Christ saves sinners and brings them into the kingdom to enjoy life with the Father forever. And he's making all things new. And he calls you to just join him in his work. Join him in understanding more fully, more deeply how much he loves you. And as you do, as you do, and even that's grace. By the word, by the spirit, what will happen is through time, the spirit will transform you. You are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom. But, but you and I have not got our stuff all figured out and worked out, right? Anybody here not sinning yet? Okay, so we still need grace? No one's graduated? Okay, good. That means you're at least understanding or you're not willing to engage in this game and raise your hand. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all of those things, right, all of these actions, all these verbs are actually about love. Just about love. So if you want to actually understand, am I growing in Christ? It's not how much Bible did you memorize. It's not how much deep theology you understand. I'm, I'm all for Bible memorization. I'm all for deep theology. It's how do you love the people that are closest to you when you think no one in this room is watching? <laughs> well, that's when you know. It's, it's when you know. And when you fail, and you'll fail, you'll fail today probably. You come back to the fact that Christ loves me. He did love me while I was a weak, ungodly sinner. And he loves me now. And he's at work in my life. And you keep coming back to the truth that he's forgiven my sins. It's not wallowing in the fact that you're, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so wretched. No, actually, you're a new creation. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, he's empowered me with grace. He's given me his spirit. I can love. I can't love. And when I fail to love well, he still loves me. He still loves me. And that doesn't give me a license to just stay stuck in, in being rude and ignorant and unloving towards people. But it does compel me and empower me to love. That's the beauty of what Christ has done. See, it's, the cross, it's, it's in the cross that we see so clearly how terrible our sin is and how beautiful Jesus is. This is why we don't move on from it. We just seek to move deeper into the truth of what Christ has done there. All right. Well, how about the last point? Uh, point three is this. The forgiveness... Boy, that sun's hit me right there. I'm going to slide over. The forgiveness of Christ compels us to join him on his mission. Why do I say that? Well, because if you keep reading, most people think, okay, chapter seven, Done. But actually, I think, really, the first three verses in chapter 8 are extremely important. So let's look. So soon after he went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, 
and the twelve were with him. So you have the twelve apostles, right? Were with him. And some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Why, why include this in the text with this sinful woman? Why include this in the text with Simon the Pharisee? Well, we don't know if this woman actually joined Jesus in this exact moment. But she's a follower. So I don't think it's a real big leap to say she did. Right? She has traded in her sinful life for a life of following Christ. Right? Her tears are tears of joy. Her tears are tears of repentance. She has come to meet the one who loves her soul. She has a new identity. Right? She's no longer going to be known as the sinful woman of the city. She's going to be known as the one who's born again, the one who's new, the one who loves Christ, and the one who has received the love of Christ. She is now new. And every person that's mentioned in this text in 8, 1 through 3 is somebody who has received the grace of God minus Judas, right? Um, we'll get to him later. But know this. This is a ragtag bunch. These are not your social elites, right? You got a girl who was healed from seven demons, right? She's now, I see Christ, I love Christ. And what are they doing? They're joining him on the work of redemptive work. Redemptive work. Do you see? That's the pattern for all believers. You were a sinner. And if you've trusted in Christ, you are now saved. And, and what do you do? You remind yourself of the love of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that love that starts to transform your life and how you love. But it doesn't just stop at the people under your roof or the people you like. It actually starts to spread out into the lives of people you may not even know. Why? Because you at one time were an enemy of Christ and he has come and he has made himself known to you. And he's brought you near. Why? Because you were seeking the Lord and wanting to know His love and His grace and His mercy? No, because He's kind. And He loves to seek and to save the lost, people just like us. But can I tell you something? The gospel isn't just for us. It's not just for us. They joined Jesus on mission of what He was doing. Redeemed men and women join Jesus in the redemptive work. We give of our time, we give of our talent, we give of our treasure. Now don't mix it up. Not in order to be saved, but because you've come to know of saving grace and mercy. How else would you respond? How else can you respond? So here's the thing. If, if, you, if you love very little, and this is right from the text. I'm not, I'm not shoving this in. The problem is you don't know how much you've been loved in Christ. It's not that you've got to try harder. You've got to receive the fact that that he loves you. Oh, and so many of people I talk to, myself included, by the way, don't think I'm some special guy up here, have a hard time connecting truth in the head to, to believe in the heart. We say often that God loves us. We say often that Jesus loves us. But we, we live as though we're orphans. We live as though that we really don't know if God does love us. See, if you and I could actually come to understand and fully embrace that God loves you in spite of you, <laughs> that it's because he's so good, we, we would turn this city upside down. We would. 
So, so really, I guess the prayer often in these moments is, God, help me to know, help me to understand, help me to believe how much you love me. Help me. Because I know and I believe, oh, but help me to understand the depths of your love. Help me to understand that, that I am in so many ways like the, the woman here. And help me to love like she loved there and not be so preoccupied what everyone else thinks, but only be preoccupied with what you think. And what do you think? Oh, your word tells me. Your word calls me beloved. Your word calls me forgiven. Your word says I'm adopted into your family because I trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Your, Your word tells me that nothing can separate me from your love. Your word tells me over and over and over that you are a God of steadfast love and mercy and that if I would just call upon the name of Jesus Christ, you will bring me in. You will make me new. You will clean me up. You will give me the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will transform me to love like you love. Oh God, help me. Help me to love like that. And and, and when he does that work, guess what happens, church? We, We don't go around boasting about how great we are and how sinful everyone else is. Or how how bad the Democrats are. Or how bad the Republicans are. Or how bad this category or that category is. We say, they need the love of Christ. And we're never shocked by their sin. We say, if it were not for God's mercy and grace, I would be just like them. But Christ has saved me. Christ has redeemed me. Christ has rescued me. Praise be to Jesus. Help me to love like that. And so that's the call. And so, church, the, the family of God is the last, let's say, the final apologetic of God's love. Jesus says, you'll know my disciples by how they love one another. I don't know much about this woman beyond here. Do you know why? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. But my guess is she was known for her love. My, when we meet her in heaven, We'll maybe get to hear some stories of how she was in the early church laboring towards love. Why? Because she had realized how much she had been forgiven. May we testify to that truth. May we testify to that love. And so really the prayer for us this morning is, Lord, help me to understand fully, finally, and we never will, the depth of your love. Help me to understand more, though. Why? Because the fruit of that is love for him and love for others. And a church that understands that they are loved will stand out in a world that's always trying to earn and receive and gain love by pretending and performing. You don't have to pretend or perform anymore. Why? Christ loves you. He loves you. You don't have to earn his love. You can't earn his love. Thank you, Lord. Pressure's off. Receive. That's what the gospel, the grace of Christ is about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your grace. Lord, we thank you for this, this story of two people who desperately need their debts forgiven. And we thank you that you gave sight to the woman to see her great need. And that she had received your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy. And she responded appropriately. She responded with, with worship and adoration and love 
for the one who loves her. Father, I pray that you would help us to love like that. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be worshipers in spirit and truth, that we'd be full of, of grace and truth and mercy. Lord, that we would come daily and remind ourselves of our need and that all our needs have been met in Christ. Jesus, thank you for being a beautiful Savior. Lord, help us to love you more fully from a truth that comes from how fully we're welcomed and loved by you. Overwhelm us with this truth. Transform us by this truth. Help us to be a people who reflect your mercy and your grace in a city who desperately needs to know the love of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.